0: You're listening to Never Sleeps Network.
1: Hey everyone, Aaron Broverman here, here to tell you about an exciting event for a very good cause. On April 21st, from 10 to 6 p.m. at Paradise Comics at 3278 Young Street, we're hosting sketches for pledges. Basically, a bunch of artists get together and uh, do some sketches for the general public, and all proceeds go to cancer research. So get a sketch, come on down, and donate to a very good cause. We're doing it for Darwin Cook. You might remember that on May 14th, 2016, the legendary Darwin Cook passed away from cancer. Uh, He was the artist on Batman Ego, uh, The New Frontier, among very many other high-profile comic projects. And then, when we did Sketches for Pledges before, on June 18th, 2016, in his honor, we raised $2,500 for cancer research. But sadly, that was bittersweet, because we lost a friend to Paradise Comics, Brendan Yap, to another form of rare cancer. So this time, we're gonna try to do it again in both of their honors, and raise a lot of money and beat our twenty five hundred dollar total so far we have a lot of great artists participating we have Lara de souza from looking for group and gutters we have megan carter from takeoff you might have heard her episode shane Kirschenblatt is organizing the whole thing he's known for his work on the jewish comics anthology he's been in the toronto comics anthology and also dorothy gale journey to oz and many other artists are participating as well if you want to participate and get in on the action on the 21st and you're part of the toronto comics community just email shane uh you can email him at Shane Kirshenblatt at Rogers.com. That's S-H-A-N-E Kirshenblatt, K-I-R-S-H-E-N-B-L-A-T-T at Rogers.com. Space is limited, so try to get in on that as soon as you can, and uh, he'll do his best to accommodate you and give you more details. I really hope you come out. Speech Bubble will be covering the entire thing, doing interviews with as many artists as we possibly can, and maybe talking to the general public and seeing what kind of sketches they got. Hope to see you there.
0: You're listening to Speech Bubble. The podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum.
1: Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. We're sponsored by Harry Tarantula if you go to rippedapparel.com, that's a geeky t-shirt website, you can get 10% off uh, if you put in the code NEVERSLEEPS, all capitals, no spaces, at checkout. The website is ripped, apparel.com Anyway, now that uh, we're getting started, with me today is a writer for Chapter House. He does freelance the first season was with jim zub who you know from the avengers and wayward he's also a contributor to the next toronto comics anthology oz good as gold he has a creator-owned book called another castle and a novel called *Valentin and the widow please welcome andrew wheeler andrew how are you i'm great thank you And how are you Good to talk to you. We had your uh, co-host on your podcast, Storybeater, Anthony Falcone, not too long ago. Yep. He turned me on to the wonders of you. (laughs) So that's what uh, brought you into the studio today, as well as uh, promoting uh, Toronto Comics Anthology. Mm -hmm. So why don't we start with where you're from? Where did you grow up?
0: So I'm... Originally from the south of England, a town called Hastings, which is quite well known because of a battle that happened a thousand years ago. So, so everyone knows of the place, even if they don't know the place. I grew up there; uh, my entire childhood was there, and uh, lived in London for a while, and then moved to Toronto about ten years ago. So, uh, I'm pretty well entrenched now in the Toronto comic scene and in the in the sort of Toronto life, but holding on to my accent for dear life because it still has a certain cachet, you know?
1: That's awesome. So what is He Stings Like? It's a very eccentric town.
0: It's right on the coast. So when I was young, you could see on a very, very clear day, you could see the French coastline very infrequently, very rarely could you see that. Now you can never see it. There's just too much pollution. But it's this, you know, it is historic. It has got this long uh, story going back to the the Norman invasion. It's a place where, you know, the, the bio tapestry is uh, is this famous work of art that is about the Battle of Hastings so that's something that everyone tends to f- be familiar with and it's sort of one of the most famous comic books in the world really, the Bio Tapestry you know it's this one continuous mural, frieze, in tapestry form that, that tells the story of a battle so there's a castle there, there are smugglers' caves, like there's a lot of tourist attractions and, and uh, a lot of artists there as well, it's a very sort of thriving bohemian community it sort of attracts eccentrics and odd people so grey Owl, who is perhaps infamous, is uh, was born in Hastings. Who came to Canada and pretended to be a, a First Nations um, person. He he's from there. Uh, Alistair Crowley died there. So there's this sort of rich history of eccentrics and uh, and uh, strange people.
1: So as a person growing up there, how did you absorb all that?
0: I mean, my mum was a painter, and so she would introduce me around to sort of artists in the community. It was, you know, everyone on on our street seemed to be a painter or an artist in some form or another. So it just seemed to always be surrounding me. My father was a writer. So, yeah, this idea of creativity was sort of ground into into me from the the beginning. And I've had this sense of Hastings as being a place where people create, people tell stories, people
1: uh, dream. It's an
0: inspirational place in its way
1: were you exposed to comics there is there a comic community in hastings no there, there
0: was a there was one comic shop where actually it was a secondhand bookshop that also sold comics and sometimes i would find comics in like in other like tiny shops here and there that are just sort of being resold or the first comics i ever found were being sold out of uh garage sales so i would get occasionally like british reprints of things occasionally you would try finding find find things in newsagent shelves um but no that was far too small to have a a comics community although my next door neighbor was a newspaper artist who did a a comic strip called i think it was called trog about this little cute sort of black furred animal creature that appeared in uh uh, the evening standard national newspaper so he was the first comic book creator i ever
1: met oh the evening standard that's pretty high oh Yeah. yeah newspaper. Yeah, he,
0: his name was Wally Fawkes. He was also a, like a jazz saxophonist or jazz trumpeter, I think. And it, yeah, he like he had two cool jobs. He was a professional, renowned jazz trumpeter, and he was a, a, a renowned
1: cartoonist as well. Did he like invite you over to watch him draw or do any of that stuff? He,
0: His son and my brother were, were best friends. So I would go over sometimes to be the annoying little brother that sort of hangs out. So I, I didn't really get to see like the... I was too young to really understand the process. But I, I was aware that this man had this
1: awesome job. Nice. When did you get into comics yourself?
0: I mean, I was always reading comics as a kid because they, it would be the sort of the European comics that we had British versions of, like Asterix and Tintin, and it would be the British comics that were just available every week, that are sort of one-page gag strips collected into books of so B- the Beano, Dandy, Wizard and Chips, um, Buster. These were the these were the comics that everyone read when I was a, a kid, so that would be the stuff that I was sort of consuming avidly. My sister and I would get different. Ones. Delivered deliver to the home and read them and swap them. Um, and yeah, the Asterix was always there for any kind of long car journey or, or any long vacation.
1: What got you into them?
0: I think the immediate appeal of comics for me was the I mean, in, in that time it was humor that's what these comics do well like both british comics and those specific european comics they're, they're comedy they're designed to be funny and wacky and to have these sort of larger than life characters so you know kids kids love to giggle kids love to laugh and so this was a a, a, a mode of, of entertainment that i really enjoyed because it was fun it was distracting and it was it was um you know, cartoons are immediately engaging to a young mind, and I think the you know the thing I always say about comics is we all read comics, and everyone sort of most people stop at a certain point. It's not that you start reading; it's that you, you just it's naturally a part of your life to read comics, and then a lot of people just sort of peel away because they don't discover the richness of what comics has to offer but you know someone like me who who went from reading these comedy comics to reading adventure comics to reading superhero comics there was never a reason for me to stop is the way i feel about
1: it right right that's cool with your your mom being a painter and your dad being a writer yeah when did the writing bug hit you did you draw like what Uh, did their influence what what impact did that have on you
0: yeah i always enjoyed doing both both art and uh writing but i think i felt a more natural affinity to, to writing um i used to tell my own stories just you know i would always have a notepad with me i would be always be be coming up with ideas and concepts and doing, like, the endless world building that a hyper-imaginative kid tends to do. Um, I would write my own superhero stories just in long, you know, in prose form. Um, I would write stories about our cats uh, if they were sort of anthropomorphic people, if they had their own adventures. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I always saw what my dad did as being one of the most exciting things you could do. And he was, my dad was a journalist, so he traveled the world with his writing. So there's always this sense of this sort of James Bond existence that went with being a writer. It seemed like a very glamorous thing to be. I know the reality now, but (laughs) at the Hmm. time, it was was, uh, very attractive and appealing. And yeah, I feel like I never quite got to the place where I felt confident as an artist. So that's the stuff that fell by
1: the wayside. Right, right. What ended up bringing you to Canada and Toronto?
0: I actually came here with, uh, with. My job at the time, um, I was working in London and I was working for Google and uh, I had been living in London for uh, long enough, I felt like at that time in my life. And in working for this big company that had offices all around the world, there was the opportunity to to try and move to another office like that's part of working there is that they give you that chance to, to try out other offices after a certain period of time. And I knew that I wanted to live somewhere that wasn't too far from home but also I didn't know another language so I couldn't go to most places and the the United States scared me far too much um and that hasn't changed so Canada seemed like the safe bet and also I knew I knew a few people in Canada in Toronto specifically and I knew the comic scene in Toronto was was great like I knew people in the comic industry in in Toronto so that seemed like a good fit so I moved over here with my job and then felt so settled here that I quit the job and stayed in the city
1: wow that's awesome yeah so how did you get connected to the toronto comic scene before coming to Toronto?
0: Oh, it was through the internet. It was, uh, yeah, message boards. The Warren Ellis Forum was uh, a big place for me back in the day. So I was, you know, I made a lot of my friends in London through message boards. So people like Jamie McKelvey, Karen Gillen, Anthony Johnson, Alex DeCampi. Like this was my generation of, of uh, my peers. Like uh, Matt Fraction and. Yeah. People. Well, he wasn't in London. Oh, okay. but, like all those other guys were living in London, London yeah. at the time. So, but yeah, I, I knew vaguely Matt Fraction and. You know Kelly Sue Conic and yeah, Chip Zdarsky, who is one of the people that I got to know when I actually moved to Toronto, and Chris Butcher, who uh, manages or managed the Beguiling and and is the festival director of TCAF.
1: Yeah, both of those guys, Chip Zdarsky and Chris Butcher, have been on this podcast oh, great. before, so you can you can check that out if you're if you're listening in our archives. Um, that's fascinating. So, what did you do for Google? And how do you go from Google to doing comics? Um, So at Google, I was...
0: The the job titles were always sort of um, impenetrably bizarre at Google and never made much sense. But basically, I was building ad campaigns for people. So we would have people like, you know, anyone can advertise on Google. But if you're a big client, if you're a big advertiser, then they offer support. So they have people that can come in and write your ads for you and manage the keywords that you're bidding on and and build entire campaigns. And so I was one of those people who was writing ads for sort of eBay or Best Buy, or I mean, eventually like the government of Canada, or Harrods was a client at one point. I oh. used to have go and have meetings at Harrods when I was in London, so that was oh, cool. that was fun. Um, yeah, it's it, it was. Uh, it was interesting to always be working with very different people all the time, and, and getting to sort of help them understand how their business should
1: look online. Did you go to school for that?
0: No, I was uh, I was uh, an English uh, lit grad at the, the University of York, not to be confused with York University, which is <laughs> here in Toronto. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah the University of York of in York, uh, which is younger than, in fact, York University, which is why it didn't get the more logical yeah. name. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm haunted by York Universities wherever I go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's awesome so then you come here you eventually quit your job at google yeah and stay here mm-hmm. tell me the thought process behind that was that you know in relation to your comics work growing or
0: no it was um it was before i started getting any sort of traction with my comics writing it was you know, a lot of the, the choices I make in my life are, are because I just realised that something is making me unhappy so li- leaving London was about realising that every morning I would get into to the office unhappy because the commute had sort of drained me of all my human kindness, of any sort of empathy because <laughs> everyone is so mean and, and self-centred on the tube that you're just sort of in this crush all, t- all the time and by the time you get to work you just feel like I don't want to deal with people anymore right. um, and with working at Google it was you know, Google always wins these best place to work in the world awards right. and I realized that if I couldn't be happy there, that's a bad sign and I found it a sort of weirdly it was a sales environment and I'm not that person, I, 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 f- I feel we need more empathy
1: and less. Yeah, sometimes sales can be a little bit predatory it,
0: yeah, absolutely, and that's the way I felt about it and yeah, I, I decided that I needed to, and that I was so happy in Toronto that I had to sort of Get my residency, and you know, Toronto. Uh, Google allowed me, gave me the leverage to be able to to attain residency. But once I had Toronto sort of locked down, my my position in Canada locked down, I didn't need to continue working in this environment that I wasn't very happy with, and that I felt was actually kind of constraining me creatively. Um, and it was around that time that the opportunity came up to to start writing for Comics Alliance. Um, so that. Became sort of the the next job for me.
1: Yeah, because you started as a comics journalist, right? Yeah. It was something I always wanted to be, going into journalism school and that sort of thing. But I I found it very very hard to break into comics journalism. Yeah, it in can the be early two thousands around the time I was going to university, right? Uh, which is part of the reason why this podcast exists. Because <laughs> I felt that you know mainstream publications. And comics, uh, journalist publications, uh, weren't taking my stuff or yeah. not taking it enough. So I decided to talk to people on a regular basis just on my own, right? So how do you get into comics journalism? This was always <laughs> this was once one of my holy grails. Yeah. And and I, I, I'm i fascinated by the process of comics yeah. journalism. I
0: mean, I think, you know, podcasting is... is one of the ways to
1: do it and it's
0: always for for pretty much any comics journalist i can name it's a case of being sort of self-starting and of doing it for love rather than money because i started out i had a i, I had a website called ninth art which i ran for 5 years and it was one of the sort of comics blogs of the early 2000s and it was a it was a site that would update it would, it would have like five articles a week and that was all but it was free and it was something that we were just putting out into the world So it was me and my friends Alistair Watson and Anthony Johnston who you know now writes uh, comics Full time, pretty much. And it was, uh, we were never one of the big sites. We never managed to be one of the CBRs or the Newsoramas, but we were around at the same time as those guys. And we were the site that was about sort of the art of comics and the, um, critical analysis of comics and we you know we had a small so it was
1: like comics journal on the web sort of thing
0: kind of yeah, yeah. i mean we were a little more uh, mainstream oriented like we our focus was on the validity of art criticism in the mainstream rather than you know the, the independent yeah so so we would celebrate smaller publishers like Oni and top shelf and, and guys like that as well yeah. but we were focused on sort of genre and entertainment stories and yeah. and finding the the truth in those
1: so and DC we had a, and Marvel and a lot image. of DC
0: and Marvel and image yeah like and it was a it was an interesting time for image it was an interesting time for comics I guess it always always is mm-hmm. <laughs> there's always so much fluctuation and we knew that we had people like you know Grant Morrison was a fan of the site Alan Moore read the site like we had a good we, we didn't have the biggest audience but we had a really high quality Audience, we knew we were part of the conversation back in the day,
1: and yeah. you weren't like the the gossip, like bleeding cool type no. stuff, right? Yeah, it was no. like a separate uh, sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I know Rich Johnston very well. I've yeah. known him for yeah. years because he was part of that same London scene. So yeah, when he had Lung in the Gutters and all his various iterations of, of his site, um, I I've been there, and I you know I I wrote some pieces for Bleeding Cool back in the day as well. So.
1: Yeah, for sure. Cool. So you're doing that. And then does that get noticed or do you go from there to Comics Alliance like what what happens next
0: Yeah so Ninth Art ran for about 5 years and then sort of lay fallow while i was working at google i I didn't have the time to to keep it up and so we all sort of agreed the 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 three of us that were running it that it was becoming too much work and it it was never going to turn a profit we weren't even trying to we weren't running ads on the site or anything um so it was a complete labor of love and at a certain point it was just too much work. So I, when I stepped away from that, I thought, well, I'm probably done with comics journalism. And then when the opportunity came up for Comics Alliance, which was at the time, uh, Laura Hudson was still editor-in-chief, but Andy Curry was my editor who brought me into the site. And he had been a fan of Ninth Art, and he was someone else that I knew through the Warren Ellis Forum. So he knew my work, and he knew my passion. Um, he knew I could write, and he knew that I cared about the sort of quality criticism that, that Comics Alliance was also building its brand around. So so he brought me into to that site and and that became my new occupation
1: and this was through the warren ellis forum sort of
0: back in the day yeah. yeah that's how we that's how we knew each other the forum was was long gone by this point i think i mean i think there's a version of it still out there but... Yeah,
1: but not in the same way yeah okay interesting so then what was writing for comics alliance like i know that eventually they got bought by like aol didn't they or they got
0: bought and sold by AOL, <laughs> so they were owned by aol when i joined them, Okay, they were sold by AOL, well, AOL shut them down, or shut us down, sort of during my first six months with the site or so, I think. Um, It's rather tumultuous. It was, yeah, it was a rough time, and we ended up, like, we were nominated for the Eisner that year, and we ended up going, but at the time, I think the site was still... Maybe the site had come back by then, but like at the point where we got nominated, we weren't an actively running site, and that was very strange. And uh, yeah, so we got bought then by uh, another company called Townsquare Square Media, um, who ran us for the next four years or so, and then they were the ones that eventually shut us down the second time, and this time it was for good. They, they didn't offer to sell to anyone else. They wanted to hold the brand, but not keep the site running.
1: Right so if you go to comics alliance now what's there
0: uh everything should be there the entire archive is still up on the site okay. but yeah in terms of what they plan to do with the site it, it, it's been a year almost since they they shuttered it or as people listen to this in fact it will have been a year so i'm sure they have some plan for the brand but no they sort of unceremoniously
1: pulled the plug on us when did you leave for your next uh, thing in life
0: uh, well, I was so I was editor-in-chief of the site when it closed its okay. doors. Okay. So, um, yeah, I was the last editor-in-chief in a, in a, a storied lineage that, that began with Laura Hudson. Uh, yeah, and I'm enormously proud of both my time as a contributor to the site and my time running the site. We did eventually win the Eisner for comics journalism, so that was a, a, a very proud day to actually get to go up on the Eisner stage and, and collect the award and, and uh, look out at all those faces. Um, that felt like a, a, a wonderful achievement and a wonderful recognition for everything we were doing through that site, which was all about elevating the discourse and shining a light on the comics that deserve the the attention that that then maybe not otherwise getting
1: and then if you were writing for them did you get paid for it oh yeah that was that that was my job yeah yeah
0: Yeah. both as a journalist initially and then as as an editor and then as editor in chief right that was my I mean it was it is a full time job running a site like that for
1: sure that's awesome yeah comics science was one of those sites where I'm like how do they how do they get a job like this (laughs) writing my comics yeah so it was definitely one of the things so then. You're the last editor-in-chief there, yeah, and then it closes. Did you know what you were going to do next after that? or I did not. I mean, it was it was a very sudden closure.
0: I got the call on a Wednesday that we were closing on the Friday so oh, wow. i did not have a, an escape plan uh, in place um but i did also at the same time know that because i was now writing comics that i needed to transition away from that job there is a there's a conflict in being a journalist that covers comics and in writing right. comics right yeah um so it had been my plan at some point in 2017 that i would hand the the site over to my successors and i i wish i'd had a chance to do that and i never did you know i wanted the site to be thriving when I left it, I didn't want it to be pulled out from under me, but I did know that, that 2017 was probably going to be my last year with the site and it turned out to be much much more quickly than i had anticipated i didn't know what i was going to go on to do um i assumed that freelancing would be a a good thing to do and then chapter house they had a need at that time for someone to come on and help with with some of their marketing and communications work so i made the the jump pretty quickly to working with chapter
1: house yeah you're the former communications director there yes that's right yeah but you're also doing comics for them too yeah at this same time right that you were you were the communications director
0: yeah so i had started doing freelance while i was still with comics alliance and so that was one of the other you know that was having done another castle while i was at comics alliance and then having the freelance gig it felt like it was definitely reaching the point where i couldn't keep doing the two jobs um but doing writing for, for Chapter House while also helping the company to improve its game seemed like a, less of a conflict. So, yeah. so that was something I was happy to, to sort of do double time on for a, a while. And they, you know, they're they're a small Toronto company. They're a startup, essentially. Um, businesses like that are always trying to sort of find their feet and, and build their momentum. So I always knew coming onto that gig that it was going to be a temporary thing for me because, again, I want to focus on my own creativity. I want to focus on my writing um, and Anything else can tend to sort of distract and pull you away from that. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was. I always went into the chapter house gig knowing that it would be sort of like a, maybe a year
1: doing that. But in terms of your comics credentials, it started with another castle, right? Like in terms of writing comics with an artist, and yeah. that sort of thing. How did that come to be?
0: That was through um, building my relationship with uh, Oni Press. So back when I had been uh, running Ninth Art, Oni was one of the publishers that we actually were sort of cheerleading for quite a lot. So we were one of the early um, fans of Brian Lee O'Malley with Lost at Sea, for example. We pushed that book and we were big fans of Jen Van Meter's Hopeless Savages and China Clugston... I don't know what her name is now, Torres, maybe? Maybe she's just China Clugsdon now. Um, Blue Monday. You know, those were books that we were big fans of in the day, and Anthony ended up doing some of his first comics work through Only Press, and it was just it was great to have this this publisher out there that was doing stuff that we really believed in, that was doing sort of genre stuff and entertainment that was focused at a sort of a younger, more female skewing audience, that was telling stories that were a little more innovative and uh, and personal and. There's a sort of, there was a brightness to Oni Press. There was this sort of wonderful, stimulated imagination that seemed to be sort of running as a thread through all of their books. So I was always very close to them and I always felt like I had the same, um, you know, that the, we were of one mind in terms of what they wanted to achieve and in terms of what I wanted to see comics become. Right. So having built a good relationship with Jamie S. Rich, who now is at DC Comics, and, the, and James Lucas Jones, who continues to uh, to uh, be one of the head honchos at Only Press. Um,
1: that and he really shepherded, like, Scott Pilgrim yeah. and... Things like that.
0: Right? Yeah, like a lot of uh, the, the books that people know only for now today are, are books that James Lucas Jones oversaw. Um, and so having that relationship, he sort of, and knowing my, my writing as a journalist, he opened the door to, to me pitching. And so I sent him a, a few ideas over over the months, I suppose, or years. I don't think I sent him a ton of things but uh, but like a half dozen ideas and then Another Castle was the one that that landed that they really liked. So uh,
1: for those who aren't familiar with that what is Another Castle?
0: So Another Castle um the the name comes of course from the the Mario uh games the the famous um Toad line um your princess is in another castle Mm. because the the idea the impetus for the the book is the idea that uh if everyone is the hero of their own story what is the princess doing while she's being held captive by the bad guy
1: while she's waiting exactly
0: Mm. so you anytime you play any video game um that's about a captured princess or a captured you know the the daughter of the mayor or what have you Mm -hmm. you know you'll get maybe occasional glimpses of the princess sort of in chains on a wall or, or what have you. I mean, this is back in the day classic arcade games right. that they would show you that the princess this whole time is your trophy at the end and you have to fight through all the villains to get to her Yeah. and my thinking is, well, what's going through her mind? What is she doing? Well, what if she's actually saving the day while you think you're saving the day? What if she's actually in the castle finding out a way to bring down the bad guy from inside his own castle and you just think that you're the hero of the story whereas she actually knows knows that she's the hero
1: of the story. So everything you're doing is a happy accident that's caused by her... essentially?
0: In a sense. Basically, the the idea here is that the only thing that the hero of another castle, Princess Misty, really needs from the the guy who thinks he's the hero is the sword. The sword is the thing that will save the day. So she needs him to get through all the monsters to get to the castle so she can get the sword. But in the meantime, she's looking for ways to sort of undermine the villain. Um, So she goes out and robs his treasury in the dark of night and she conspires with the monsters to make sure they don't kill the, the prince before he gets to the the bad guy so it's all about just sort of turning the focus and imagining a video game scenario but where the 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 woman is not a trophy she's actually the hero driving
1: the whole story the whole right right that's that's awesome that that's amazing i I would totally read that (laughs) so what was it like working with uh with paulina uh your artist how do you pronounce her last name Uh, ganasho ganasho paulina ganasho was that the first time that you'd collaborated with an artist on a comic? Yeah, well, so I did,
0: I had done a very small, like, comic for, there was a site that Namco was running that had a bunch of sort of video game conceit comic strips on there. So I had done, like, a, a, a tiny short run on a, on a comic strip that Jim's Up had actually been, been doing, and he needed someone to take over. So that was with Stephen Cummings, who is, of course, Jim's collaborator on Wayward. Right. So yeah, I did do some writing for for Steve back in the day, uh, but that was you know that was a, a a day's work really. Yeah. Um. So this was my first time doing like a serious yeah long form comic book project. We have to like
1: break down the scripts and yeah. do all and like actually forge a relationship with this yeah. person. Yeah. So uh, what is that like? What is the collaborative process like? I'm sure. You know, if people listen to Storybeater, they'll hear a lot about this sort of thing. But yeah, but to tell tell me what what was that like for you?
0: I mean, yeah, in Storybeater, we mostly talk about story from a writer's perspective and sort right. of you know breaking down tropes and that sort of thing and 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 um, yeah, what works and what doesn't in a story. When it comes to collaboration, what you're looking for with a collaborator is to find that sort of that common ground. And with Paulina, it was very easy because she has this tremendous she has a wonderful design sense and she has this incredible uh, ability to to make the characters act on the page like her facial expressions are just perfect um the way that the characters sort of come to life through her art is fantastic and she colors everything herself in, in another castle so she had this sense of of how the book should look and what the characters you know how to bring the characters to life that was doing so much of the work for me as a writer that I knew I could trust her to sort of tell this this perfect story. Um, and yeah, it, it was a, a case of coming to... I came to Oni with the pitch and they looked for an artist for the book and Paulina was the one who, when they showed her work, to me I was like well that's that's perfect it's sort of it's just the right side of sort of the the Disney idea of, of a princess story but it has a little bit more it has some edge and it's a little bit more of a sort of commentary on Disney rather than being straight Disney it's got a sort of uh, it's infused with a little bit of Sailor Moon for example and there were little touches of, of video game culture that she sort of brought to the art as well um, so yeah she was a really uh, inventive and collaborative. Uh, artist to work with um and the moment that i saw her designs for the characters it was like okay now i i have an even better idea of who these people are
1: was she in the u.s or canada or she's in the
0: u.s yeah right, she's right. she um she had been working on i don't know if it was out at the time but she she also does a book called zodiac starforce right with kevin panetta published by dark horse um and so that was her first big comics gig and then yeah another castle was a second and then she's back to doing a, a second uh, Zodiac Star Force after that and yeah so she's she's based
1: in the states cool so collaborating long distance was that tough or because technology it sort of brings you closer together type thing
0: yeah i mean we would have occasional phone calls with our editor Ari Yarwood who um is now the editor in chief at Oni Press so Ari would get us on the on the phone together to sort of talk through uh, everything and three-way phone calls are always terrible um,
1: right.
0: but but apart from that we would mostly work via via email so that was yeah it was
1: pretty easy process. and then when you're writing the scripts like how detailed do you have to get into like the panel descriptions and things and things like that I think it varies for every
0: every writer has their own way of doing things. You know, Alan Moore is famous for writing these long, long screeds, these right. incredibly detailed uh, scripts. Um, and, you know, this was my first time writing scripts at this sort of length and learning, you know, things about the, the number of panels to put on a page, the number of words to put into a, a balloon.
1: You know, this is all
0: stuff that... You have to learn for yourself where the limits
1: are. Really, you know. Right, and you were probably making a lot of mistakes and correcting them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a good editor and a, and a good collaborator, and, and they were able to sort of steer me right. Um, and I was lucky enough to have taken Ty Templeton's mm-hmm. comics writing classes, which I think are you know anyone who is in Toronto and wants to work in comics those are a tremendous uh, tool to sort of just understanding the fundamentals.
1: Yeah, you have no idea how many people who've been <laughs> on this podcast shout out Ty Templeton's comic yeah. book boot camp uh guys if you're listening and you want to be a (laughs) comics writer or artist do that and you're in toronto go to ty Tumbleton's comic book boot camp for sure yeah because so many people on this podcast in you know whatever level of comics they're working in have gone through uh ty's uh ty's program and found it extremely helpful
0: yeah he's a phenomenal teacher Mm -hmm. and he really helps you he helps you catch the mistakes that you would have made, you know. So, so I think because of Ty, I made fewer mistakes than I might have otherwise because nice. he does, he gives you all the tools you need and sort of helps you understand when a page is too crowded or when a speech balloon is too crowded or how to just deliver an action across however many panels you need. So,
1: right. Yeah. And was, was Another Castle well-received? Uh, it's one volume, so yeah. it didn't have like a beginning, middle, and end? Or it was,
0: Yeah, it was always planned to be a standalone story. I didn't want it to be, you know, I, I know what I would do if we ever decided to do a sequel, but I'm not currently working on it. Uh, it, it, it's designed to be a book that can be can be read in one piece, and and that was always the intention. And yeah, we've had a fantastic reception. We got a, a great review, a starred review from Publishers Weekly. we made a few lists of you know great feminist books for kids or great books for young readers. Like it's it's really rewarding, especially to see librarians and educators pick up the book and and realize that that it's a useful tool for them, something that they can put in front of a young reader to sort of teach them. Lessons about respect, lessons about diversity, lessons uh, uh, about, uh, you know, being, uh, taking control of your own life. Like, that's the message that that the book contains.
1: At the time, did you want to see more of that in comics? Because, I mean, that's before sort of our current times now. Mm -hmm. Was it your intention to have a more uh, feminist uh, point of view uh, and bring that to comics in general as something that you hadn't seen
0: yeah, before? Yeah, it, it's always been something that I've advocated for through throughout my, my writing, through my journalism, um, through my stewarding of, of Comics Alliance, that comics are at their best the more people we can reach. You know, comics are, are such an accessible medium and they are such a great way to teach people empathy and to to give people an escape so the idea that they should be sort of ha- that they've somehow found their way trapped into this narrow band audience it's a mistake for the whole medium because this is something where um, women and people of diverse backgrounds and fr- from diverse cultures can all appreciate comics and in fact comics exist everywhere around the world and have always existed in some form or another so why are we building walls around them why are we making the industry smaller than it has to be um, and the number one audience to try and break out to is is a wider female readership to get young women reading comics to get women of all ages reading comics, to make sure that that, uh, comics are being put down in front of girls as well as boys. You know, that's that's essential to the future of the industry, not just in terms of building the... Readership, but in terms of building the talent that's creating comics, because if you read comics as a kid, you're more likely to make comics as a grown-up, and we don't mm-hmm. have enough women making comics either. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wanted to, to write a book that a women of all ages could enjoy, and men should enjoy it too. And right. it's got you know, it's got everything for for everyone to enjoy. I hope, um, but it's designed to be inclusive. Um, you know, the cast is diverse. I, I put you know as a, as a queer creator i put queer characters in all of my work um so yeah it it, it was important to me that this be a book that uh isn't bound to old ideas of, of who comics are for
1: right and then you want to see yourself represented in terms of in terms of sexuality and <laughs> yeah. things like that as well right
0: yeah absolutely
1: awesome you've been listening to speech bubble back after this This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. It's interesting because we all desire to have these sorts of things be normalized like it shouldn't be an event but in parts of the industry especially like the mainstream industry uh it seems like whenever you know they're doing something for women or they're doing something that's queer focused (laughs) they make a big deal out of it It, they turn it into into an event which therefore sort of minimizes it or like puts the focus too much on it to make it you know Not what you want it to to be in terms of drawing attention to it, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah,
0: we can't have every attempt at better representation be a referendum on whether or not that audience deserves to be represented. Right,
1: right. You know, so
0: it can't be that, oh, well, you know, Midnighter only lasted for 12 issues, therefore we don't need to do another book like that. Right. Who, whichever run on wonder woman is the most successful therefore maybe no. maybe me, men should be always writing right the wonder woman
1: because or there's a female thor and it's yeah. huge in the media like why don't they just make a female thor and not a make a big deal out of it right you know, you know and, what I mean?
0: and <laughs> yeah i mean you know there are so many easy mistakes that, that seem to be made by by publishers when they're trying to, to broaden out their audience on the one hand you have to hype things to get people to know that they exist and on the other hand it can't always be whether this succeeds or fails is going to be the deciding factor and you know marvel has had tremendous success uh the female thor outsold the male thor right um books like uh, squirrel girl and Mo- moon girl and devil dinosaur are doing phenomenal business outside of the direct market and that's the reason why those books continue to to exist and that's you know that's a sign of, of where Marvel could be doing more books like that if it weren't so focused on the, the comic book industry. And we're seeing DC, DC doing similar things with like its Zoom imprint and its Ink imprint, where it understands that the market is bigger than what's sold through comic book shops. Right. And it doesn't always have to be a test. There is this very limited way of thinking where everything is always a test of whether something works that's outside of what we normally do. Right. And that can't be the way we think. We have to be thinking in terms of the the big picture, in terms of the the future. Only the future is only going to serve us if we reach for it.
1: Yeah, and and there has to be a realization that like the most extreme voices are the loudest, but they don't yeah. represent the mainstream audience or the most people. Oh, the internet's full of idiots, right?
0: I mean, that's just a fact. <laughs> you can have a very popular YouTube channel, and you're still an idiot at the end of the day,
1: <laughs> right? Exactly exactly so let's go back to chapter house and and freelance because yeah. speaking of queer characters those are queer characters right that's right yeah. and and i also want to get into like i know that it's it's sort of a legendary old canadian comic yeah that i was sort of really unfamiliar with before <laughs> i was preparing for this interview so tell the people about Freelance, and then we'll get into, you know, why they're queer characters and yeah. that sort of thing.
0: So Freelance uh, was created by a couple of guys named um, Ed Furness and Ted McCall back in the 1940s. Uh, back when you couldn't import American comics into Canada because they were considered non-essential during the war. Um, so all non-essential goods were, were, were restricted from crossing the U.S.-Canada border. Um, so, Canada built its own comic industry during that time.
1: These were the Canadian Whites, These were right? the Canadian Whites,
0: yeah. Um, so, the very first Canadian uh, superhero was called Iron Man, who is not the same one that everyone knows now. Uh, and the second Canadian superhero was Freelance. And, and a bunch of others followed during that period. And... All of those characters then sort of went away again within about five years because then the the restriction on cross-border imports went away and, of course, the US has always had more muscle and so those comics flooded back into Canada and became the the dominant industry in Canada as well. Right. So, yeah, it's this sort of little lost bubble of great characters like freelance, like Brock Windsor, that sadly are, are mostly forgotten today and because they're all in the public domain... Um, they are ripe for reinvention. So when Chapter House was setting up its own sort of shared universe of heroes, one of the things it wanted to do was incorporate some someone, a, a character from the earliest days of Canadian comics because Chapter House had... Uh, Captain Canuck mm-hmm. and had Northguard and had Pitiful Human Lizard. So these are characters from like the the seventies, the eighties, the, the the modern day.
1: Well, all except Pitiful Human Lizard, which is cre- that, creator created. Yeah, yeah, but owner. but is
0: it but exists now in the same sort of shared universe right. as those they other all, characters. Okay. So yeah, all of those characters are actually licensed by Chapter House from their creators. Okay, none of those are public domain, but right. freelance the creators sadly are long gone, and the the character itself does does not belong to anyone anymore. Right. So except this version of the character now belongs to to Chapter House. Um, and in the original, the the character of Lance Valiant, which is this a wonderful sort of pulpy name for a character, he is this sort of uh, globe trotting adventurer who comes from this lost land in the uh, Antarctic uh, or possibly the Arctic, I can never remember what the original was um, and he 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 travels around with his two companions uh, a Russian spy named Natasha and a uh, pirate named John Cabot and they travel to these sort of exotic locales and uncover evil plots and fight the bad guys. He seemed very ripe for a sort of modern up-to-date pulp adventure story but the guys at Chapter House actually took the decision that, hey, what if we were to reinvent this classic Golden Age character as a queer superhero? Um, which is sort of mind-blowingly bold for a, a startup publisher to say. You know what? This is this is the third book in our line, third or fourth book in our line. It's the first book in our official sort of shared universe. You know where we're saying, okay, this is now a universe of books, not just two, three books uh, that you could that are interlinked, but an actual world of books to launch that shared universe and that initiative with a superhero who is gay and to get a gay writer in to lead on that book I can't think of many publishers that would do something like that. And I'm always eternally grateful that they brought me in. And Jim Zub as my co-writer, that he came on board as well, because he has all the experience writing superheroes and I have all the experience of being gay, that between us, we could actually create a gay superhero that seemed relevant and and authentic.
1: So what did you want to do with the modern freelance? Like, what is that about? What does it take from the old and what what is new about it?
0: it definitely you know echoes the the model of the original it's still a globe trotting adventure book and it still has lance and his two traveling companions so N- natasha the spy is now Tasha, who is uh, um, rather than Russian, she's um, an Inuit woman, a scientist who worked for Canadian intelligence and went undercover in Russia. Um, that's something we see more of in, in season two that's uh, yet to come out, but that was that's her backstory. And John, uh, who was a pirate in the original, is a, a sort of smuggler and a rogue in this version. And it used to be that Lance had a sexual tension with natasha and in our version the sexual chemistry is all with john it's all about the two guys so that's one of the 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 things that makes it modern and of course it's a more diverse cast so in tasha and john are both people of color in the new version um lance is gay john is bisexual in the new version it was very conscious for me to make sure that tasha was a um a woman in stem that she's a, a scientist and a, a genius right you know all of these things made it more contemporary and spoke more to a sort of modern world and the world around us and to, to Canada and Canadian
1: values yeah it seems really progressive that a little Canadian publisher would be like let's let's do this let's make a gay yeah. superhero and let's let's do it and have it be like the lead book of our shared universe and instead of being like we can't find any gay writers to write this we're going to find one and we're yeah. going. We're going to give it to them.
0: That's it. Like I, you know, I only had one one previous title to my name, um, which is one of the reasons you know for bringing Jim in to to sort of help steward the book and, and make sure that people could have confidence in it. But uh, yeah, it was still it was still a very bold
1: idea, I think, on that part. But you had a prior relationship with Jim because you'd you'd worked with his collaborator on Wayward a little bit, right? Like, yeah, and you he'd knew actually, each
0: other. Jim and I have known each other for pretty much as long as I've lived in Toronto. Okay. Um, he was one of the first sort of new friends that I made when I moved to this city. He's, you know, he's one of the most uh, gregarious and and sort of uh, social guys. He's, he's a network all in himself. So yeah. just knowing Jim, it opens doors for you in Toronto in terms of sort of building your relationships in the Toronto comic scene.
1: Well, and he's one of the busiest people in comics. He's a teacher. Yep. I don't know how he writes... All that he writes and still teach full-time and he, keep office hours and you know, do everything that comes with teaching. He
0: has one of the most admirable work ethics in comics and still finds time to sort of lift other people up and help people and, you know, use his blog to, to educate people on how comics really work. It's it's phenomenal. Like, we're very lucky to have him.
1: <laughs> what is it like working with him on an actual thing? Like, is is, is business Jim a different person than, like, social Jim?
0: You, you know, he he takes writing comics very seriously, um, and he was you know very generous with his time and his his uh, his wisdom. Like he he has his ways of doing things, and and he imparted those to me and, and helped me understand you know how he paces a superhero book and how he structures the sort of the the twenty pages that you have to work with. Um, and I'm you know grateful to have been able to take those lessons and, and internalize them into my own work. With Freelance, it was the case that uh, he wanted me to, to take the lead on it because, you know, I, it's a gay book and we want it to be authentic. So the, the plots and the the villains and those things, uh, I came up with, with much of that. And then we sat down together and broke down the story beats and... and worked out what each scene was and you know how many pages it would be and that sort of thing and the the dialogue would be sort of each of us making a pass at it in turn so yeah it was a really uh edifying collaboration
1: what is the difference with writing uh homosexual relationships versus heterosexual relationships are are they mostly the same is 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 there other things that you have to think about when you're Uh, trying to execute them creatively?
0: They ought to be exactly the same. In theory, there is no difference in how you write a a same-sex relationship versus a a male-female relationship. In practice, there are some different considerations just because of the way we're all socialized. So the, the first consideration is, are people going to understand that this is a romantic and or sexual relationship from the page because people are so programmed to read things a certain way that if even if you show two characters expressing love or affection between them if they're both male people will be like oh they're just buddies or if they're they're girls, then there's a reason that the phrase uh, gal pals has entered the lexicon, uh, certainly in the queer community at least, to mean two women who are clearly in a a lesbian relationship who the mainstream media interprets as just being gal pals. So that happens all the time, that if people are clearly uh, in a same-sex relationship people will still look for ways to interpret it as not that because it's not what they're used to. W- so w- it was very important.
1: Like Oprah and Gail? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Potentially, I don't have the facts on that. Okay. Um, but, I mean, but like Kristen Stewart, the, the, the Twilight a- actor, right. she is openly a queer woman. But for a long time, her relationships with other women were presented as them being gal pals in the right. in the papers. right. Um, and there are plenty of examples of that in the real world. So on the page, you need to be able to sort of, you know, you have to show a kiss, and it has to be a romantic kiss. So it was important to me that in the first season of Freelance, that we had to have a kiss. And you don't get to it until the fourth issue, because it's a story. Right. And it, the, the, the kiss is, a, is an ending of, of that particular part of the story. Uh, so we have to build up to it. But the kiss has to be there, and it has to be a romantic kiss.
1: Well, And in the case of Freelance, like the original Freelance, the sexual tension was supposed to be with Natasha. Yeah. And... I guess in the new freelance, this Tasha still exists. Yeah. So are there readers who think, oh, like it's just a phase. Like he's eventually (laughs) going to end up with Tasha. I mean, maybe there are people kind of totally on board and like no 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 like this is what's happening i mean fan fiction is shipping people all the time so that has to be a benefit to, to you
0: that's true people and you know people are welcome to to have their own interpretations and even to write their own versions of a story you know i'm a big fan of fan fiction i think it's a great way for people to build their skills and to see the stories that the mainstream isn't willing to show them so for especially for uh, queer readers and for fans of queer relationships it's incredibly vital that we have fan created media i don't know if anyone is out there hoping that john uh, that lance and, and tasha get together in the end but uh, it's certainly not going to happen under my watch like, <laughs> right. lance is exclusively gay and and tasha as i write her is, is not interested in relationships at all right um so that you know that's she's the brains of the operation she has a very vital function to serve in this mm-hmm. in this team but the the romance is entirely between the guys. But I, I have certainly had it like in my in my novel series Valentin and the Widow, that's also a book with a, a, a female lead and a and a male lead, and the male lead is gay, but it's sort of a a slow development of his coming to terms with who he is and there are still people that want the male and female leads to get together in in that series. Right. That I've that I've encountered people are like oh yes but they're going to kiss in the end. And I'm like no they they're not. They're never going to kiss.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> in the case of Freelance is um, reckoning with with their sexuality has already happened like off the page or are they are they more comfortable with 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 who they are at this point or when we meet them in the story?
0: There's yeah there's never a question of where, of them doubting their identities, right? Yeah, no, not in this book. That this is not about that. So yeah, in in my novel, yes, there that is a central theme for the lead male in that mm. in freelance, I didn't want it to be about coming out or coming to terms
1: with. Right. Because there's still adventuring that you have to you Exactly. Have to do. Like we
0: only have four, <laughs> you know, we have to tell a story in, in, in 80 pages in four issues it's packed, you know, and, and you can be at peace with your identity as a, as a gay man in Lance's case, or as a bisexual man in, in John's case and still have other troubles. And in this case, the, the, the tension between them is that Lance is a very, Lance plays within the rules to a certain degree like he believes that you have to give people chances and you can't go around just sort of killing people for example and John is John comes from a different background and he's used to not having opportunities given to him so he's not prepared to give them to other people so there's a difference in how they see the world and that creates a tension between them
1: so how while you're doing this do you have time to write a novel and and everything
0: (laughs) well I mean for a lot of writers I think there's never an option to not be writing and the novel it's actually a, it's a series of novels and it was originally a podcast so I originally before I even was was writing comics I was writing these stories and recording them and releasing them as a podcast and the podcast sadly is, is no longer a Up, but during the the time that I was originally writing *Valentine the Widow*, I built up a pretty nice audience during that time. It was one of I think one of the examples of my writing that I think James at Oni. Latched onto as as a, a reason to sort of take my pitches seriously. You know the proof. The the thing is, if if you want to make comics and you want to pitch to people, you have to prove that you can start something, and then you have to prove that you can finish it. Right. Um, and so I wrote these. I wrote four adventures that I released as podcast serials. That, are, that star the valentin and the widow characters and the first book in the collection collects the first two of those adventures and the second book will be out later this year we'll collect the second two and the third book will start moving into territory that was never released in the podcast but that, that has already been written because i actually wrote further ahead than i ever released for the podcast because as you know recording things can be a time suck
1: (laughs) yeah and then you and then you you decide i want to put this as an episode or i want to leave this on the back burner and stuff that you think is going to make it to air doesn't yeah but it's still around
0: exactly yeah so so yeah so i have uh enough of these adventures to get me sort of up to volume four at least and the plan is for there to be six volumes total of valentin and the widow which i should explain to to the listeners it's uh it's a 1920s pulp action adventure serial. It's I describe it as James Bond meets Downton Abbey. It's the story of a a young aristocratic widow who discovers that her husband was part of this evil society and she and he was an engineer and he was building these contraptions of death. So she decides she has to go around the world finding and dismantling these these machines of death. These operations to to control and and change the world towards evil ends. So she wants to to stop this evil society and in order to do that, she hires there's this uh, burly Russian sailor to be her personal valet um, and, and traveling companion as she goes around the world. And he is this troubled uh, gay man that, that's sort of dealing with heartbreak and trying to find his place in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's these two characters that are sort of outcasts and products of, of uh, their own imperial legacy of, you know, the British and Russian empires uh, who are looking to dismantle a different empire. Right. Um, and it's it's a lot of fun and it's very much about sort of larger than life villains and sexy sort of encounters and, and there are some femme fatales but it's mostly homme fatales in, in these stories, it's mostly sexy male villains, uh, sexy male villain sidekicks I should say um, some of the main villains are women because I think evil women are a lot of fun, I grew up on Disney.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally with the whole Maleficent yeah. and yeah, for sure, for sure Ah, and like the White Queen and all those different <laughs> villains, it's totally awesome. So you have that coming out the next part of that series coming out but then you also have season two of freelance yep and jim zub isn't helping this time
0: no he's abandoned me to uh, to write something called avengers uh, yeah avengers. <laughs> um, i've never heard of it i'm, so- I'm just, i wish him well um <laughs> you know it, it's actually it's so great for jim that he's getting to do a book like avengers and doing this so it's the, the weekly edition maybe probably wrapped by the time this this comes out yeah avengers Um,
1: no surrender it's happening right now as we're recording this yeah but uh probably because they're re re relaunching it uh i think jason air is writing the avengers eventually yeah yeah it was
0: always planned to be like a four month sort of 16 issue run i think that that he's co-writing so yeah when when that project fell on his lap he didn't really have the time to keep going with freelance but also i think it was always the plan for both of us that freelance is really my book that he was helping get off the ground rather than than it was going to be a sort of ongoing collaboration between the two of
1: us did having his name on it help with the marketing and the sales and that sort of stuff
0: Absolutely, because, yeah. you know, it's Jim. 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 He's yeah. such a, he's he's a marketing machine. He's so good at, at right. getting the word out there and, and mm-hmm. he can talk for Canada. So he was great to have on the book, but I, there's a recognition, I think, for both of us and for, for everyone at Chapter House that the best person to tell a gay superhero story is going to be a gay
1: writer. Yeah, for sure. And at this point, he's helped you build your audience and yeah. hopefully the audience likes the story enough to want to stick with it. Yeah, I hope see, so. See where it goes. Um, so
0: yeah, and we had so we had um, Venida Variac was the artist on the first season and she's a phenomenal artist with this sort of very manga informed style. Um, we have a new artist named Juan Samu doing the second arc who's st- is also i mean he's a little more traditional but a fantastic storyteller um and vanita has stayed on to do the colors so there's some continuity there so yeah it's uh Veneta and i are sort of the season one to season two <laughs> carrying on the legacy and and, uh, and juan comes on to 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 be the, the lead
1: artist what are your plans for season two as far as you can disclose them
0: um so i mean it's all written it's another four issues um another complete arc and uh, yeah i'm really excited for people to discover it so one of the things that we discover in the first season is that lance is is superhuman he has this you know he has strength and speed and and healing and all of these sort of adaptive superhero powers, these sort of classic superhero powers. Um, but he doesn't know who he is or where he came from. He's a, he's a man without a, a history, without, um, without a nation, without an allegiance. That's what makes him freelance. He fights for what's right, not for any particular individual cause or country. And he doesn't understand the root of his power. And in Volume 1, he discovers that there is this uh, rift energy this this energy of this lost civilization that the villain of that story taps into to try and uh, force her agenda and she identifies him as a member of this lost civilization that's now all all gone mm. millennia past there's no one left except him right in volume 2 we find out that he's actually not the only one there is one other um, and that there is a relationship between the two of them that that they may be, you know, because they don't remember their past, they don't know how close they were. And there are other people trying to tap into this lost energy all around the world. So we start, you know, the, the season two opens with uh, our heroes putting down one of these attempts to tap into the lost energy and then quickly escalates to them meeting this deadly assassin who has been traveling around the world trying to kill people who use this energy and so it becomes their mission to try and both stop this assassin and to save some of the people that he's targeting
1: wow sounds amazing uh thank you i'm
0: i'm I'm really excited for people to to discover it and it's there's a there's a bit of a gay love triangle going on in the second arc which i think is going to be a lot of fun we put the kissing in the first issue this time because right. that that's resolved. So so uh, yeah. so yeah. So uh, no, it's not only in the first issue; it's in other issues as well. People should click the whole series to get all of the
1: kissing. Yeah. So like high <laughs> high relationship drama, yeah. high like swashbuckling action and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's,
0: it's a lot of fun and it was important to me to make sure that the relationship dynamics are sort of, are a big part of the story. Like, that we're not just saying, oh, he... On the one hand, I didn't want it to be, oh, he's a gay superhero, so everything he does has to be gay in some weird, undefinable way.
1: Like the sort of effeminateness or like... It, just the idea of
0: gay as some sort of pastiche. Like, it, it's right. not, I mean, you know, there's... Uh, Gay men can be butch or femme or or you know, all kinds of these are all valid identities and to be right. you know, and, and our heroes are uh, superheroes, so they're pretty butch presenting. Right. Um but the, you know, it's it's not a, a commentary on that and for a man to be
1: femme or butch or whatever he You're wants to be. You're not trying to
0: categorize
1: the people No, absolutely in not. The comic. You
0: know, and I wanna be inclusive where where it is possible to be inclusive. Right. But it's not a book about being gay—it's a book where the characters are gay, right. and I don't want that to be or or bi or queer. Mm. Um, and I don't want that to be something that we lose track of. I want it to be part of the story. I want the relationships between those characters to be part of the story. But I, at the same time, it's not going to be about the the stereotypes of being gay, or it's not even a book about gay culture. And there are, you know, and I could write a great book about a superhero occupying a space in gay culture. There are books I want to tell about being gay. In, in a city like Toronto there are books I want to tell about being femme or butch there are characters that I want to create that will explore these identities but in this case it's a romance adventure mm-hmm. and it's about the relationships between between the characters and so that's the thing that sort of propels it forward
1: and you don't want to be like salacious about it I imagine like a constant like look what we're doing well, type, that's the other type of thing that's
0: the other challenge that makes writing gay characters different or writing same-sex relationships different is that people think that things are adult when they're not right um and yeah it's you know there are people who will say that to have two men kiss is is salacious where they wouldn't make the same criticism of a man and a woman exactly yeah so yeah it's not salacious it's not crossing any boundaries that haven't been crossed by straight characters in comics but it is crossing boundaries where people don't expect to see that or think there's something wrong with that. Like I'm happy. I'm more than happy to challenge the ignorance of people who think that if it's two men kissing, then therefore it's adult, it's not adult. It's just romance.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it has to be normalized. Yeah. You know, for sure. Speaking of Toronto and all the stories that you want to tell, yep. you have a story in the next volume of the Toronto Comics Anthology. That's right? right. Yeah. So, do you want to tell me a little bit about that story? Did did you did you get to tell one of those Toronto stories that you that you also wanted to tell?
0: Yeah, I'm very happy with the the story that I I'm telling. It's uh it's called Cinnataph and it's art by Caitlin Sao. or Sau. I actually don't know how to say her surname. <laughs> But it's uh, it's a story about histories and and holding on to the past and Toronto's tendency to not do that. Um, it's a story set in a condo construction where four ghosts. Um, from toronto's past sort of meet and lament what's being lost in the city
1: i feel like this is like a reaction to the taking down of honest ed's the storied department store that's being turned into condos right now like speaking of not holding on to our past i mean they're they're rocking like an iconic city block right now and like it's just a hole in the ground
0: absolutely it's it's devastating to see things like honest ed's taken away from us um there was uh, a wonderful tailor's shop on on Young and Bloor that got that that was supposed to be preserved and then suddenly it got burned to the ground and now right. well, there's a condo going up.
1: Yeah yeah yeah.
0: And there's like there doesn't seem to be any punishment for doing that in this city. There doesn't seem to be any effort to 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 right. preserve the heritage of this city. Right. Um and and uh, yeah, it's absolutely a commentary on the, on the <laughs> fact that we have failed time and time again. In Toronto to, to remember who we were and how we got here. And so it's four characters from four different points in Toronto's history um, lamenting what they've lost and, and wondering if anyone's gonna remember them.
1: Yeah, I mean I think the only real historical area of Toronto is probably where I live, in in the distillery and oh, yeah. Front Street and Market Square and that that area. Right. But I think only because it's sort of like the last vestige of, of like the original town of York, what Toronto mm. used to be called. And I think it was going to get torn down back in the day until somebody stopped it right. so that's one of the cases where somebody like saved the day before all of the architecture yeah, from and the, the 19th century was gone.
0: The distillery district is, is beautiful now. It's, right. It's like it, they've managed to find a purpose for those buildings and to make it feel like a very sort of vibrant part of the community I live in Kensington Market which is another area that is you know, historic and yeah. important to the culture of Toronto, but is constantly under threat from basically people wanting to demolish the whole thing. It's like any day now a fire is gonna sweep through that place and it won't be an accident.
1: <laughs> yeah. Weird. It's amazing all these weird like insurance things mm-hmm. and stuff that happen. Yeah, like, you know, I'm really looking forward to reading your story just to see what you think, and yeah. like what the different perspectives are going to be from these characters of the past, and
0: and you know, and I come stuff. from a I come from a country with a, a longer history and that preserves its history better than, than Toronto
1: does. Like England is all about history and preserving yeah. history, <laughs> and you know,
0: as as I said at the outset, you know, my town, my hometown, is famous for a historical event that happened there. Well, people preserve and remember those events. The, mm-hmm. the castle on the hill is a ruin, but it's still there. It's not a ruin because developers came along. Yeah. And living in London, you you stumble across history all the time, and it gives you the sense of of the place and the importance of the place and of all the many lives that have, have lived there. And Toronto could have that too, even though it's a much younger city by hundreds and you know more than a thousand years it could still have that honoring of its own past and and it's so sad to me to see a city abandoning its identity like that
1: i think canadians have a tendency to like downplay themselves in favor for what they think is bigger like america or whatever so i think it comes from that like like they're more about like keeping up with the joneses than they are about Preserving what they have because they don't feel that, like, Canada is as important, really, or it's...
0: Yeah, I get that sense that that Canada is, you know, it's nice that Canada doesn't have the arrogance that sort of so typifies a lot of America's dealings with the world. Mm -hmm. um, And which is, you know, there are many lovely Americans. But but as a national character, they're typified by arrogance. And and Canada tries to humble itself in contrast, to present itself as a sort of much more deferential uh, nation.
1: Right, But you can humble yourself into the ground. Yeah, exactly.
0: Like, it's a great (laughs) instinct to want to be uh, altruistic and good. Um, And Canada hasn't always been good and hasn't always recognized its flaws, but it does at least try to be as a nation as a character it tries to be humble but yeah at a certain point you have to also be ambitious right. and toronto as a city especially is so bad at ambition right we don't have a waterfront i mean can you imagine a city that doesn't have a waterfront or a river like right. every city in the world has one of those two things and toronto somehow doesn't
1: have either right <laughs> that's embarrassing. Or they're just building it now yeah. they're just realizing the importance of it Right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. So, the last thing I want to talk to you about is is your podcast. Because mm-hmm. you're on a podcast. Uh, Valentin and the Widow was a podcast. Right. So, you're very experienced in this podcasting thing. And y- you have continued into podcasting because you're doing Story Beater with Anthony Falcone, as, as I yeah. mentioned. How did that come to be?
0: So, I got to know Anthony through the the Raid Studios guys. So... That's, you know, one of the great Toronto studios because this, as I say, it's a great uh, comics community in Toronto. There's so much talent. One of the things that Canada does very well is have a social safety net, which means that people can do things like pursue a career in arts. Mm. Um, And that's why some of the biggest names in comics today, like Francis Manipal, like Marcus Toe, like Ramon Perez. uh, Jeff Lemire. Jeff Lemire, um, you know, Chip and Kagan McLeod. Yeah. Like the, the... I can reel off so many names of people who are who are phenomenal creators who are all based here in Toronto, and a bunch of them are all at the Rage Studios. So through knowing those guys, I met Anthony, who um, tables at, at the studio, and we just got talking about our sort of love of deconstructing stories. It's a thing that I think a lot of writers love to do is – and I, I've seen I've I've seen people complain that you know the more you get into writing the harder it is to enjoy media because you're always deconstructing it. If you watch a movie, you're always sort of acknowledging the the tropes or the structure, and you're going to come out of the movie and want to have a conversation about how everything did or didn't work and saying that's bad. And I don't think it's bad. I think it's great. I enjoy movies because I go into them with an analytical brain right it doesn't take anything away from it for me and so we we got to talking about how it would be fun to do a podcast that's kind of about that that's about taking a piece of media a piece of popular media and and breaking it down in that way and sort of recognizing what works and what didn't and where the sensitivities are um and and yeah so we initially we were doing it every couple of weeks it Again, it's a case of where something becomes so much work that you need to. You're either going to stop doing it or you're going to scale it back. And so we decided to scale it back. So we do one just one episode a month. Cool. And it's usually uh, built around a piece of recent pop culture. So it'll be a movie or a TV show, something like that, where we sit down and, and we just sort of spend an hour or so breaking down the, the,
1: the story. Are they the, like, phenomenons, like the Wonder Womans and the Black Panthers and those sorts of things? Yeah,
0: so we didn't we we did do a full Black Panther episode because we always do an Oscars episode every year. We always do an episode where we try and see as many of the screenplay nominees and right. talk about what works and what doesn't in those and what we think is going to win. And so we uh, Black Panther, unfortunately, was timed to coincide with, with that episode. So we did about an hour on the Oscars and about half an hour on Black Panther, where normally I think we could have talked about Black Panther for two hours, right. yeah, <laughs> very yeah. comfortably.
1: So since you analysed the the screenplay nominees, what did you think of the winners?
0: I was very pleased with the winners. They were actually, I think, I mean, it's it's on record, so if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But but I think they were both of the, the movies I wanted to win, win won. Certainly I was very happy to see, you know, Get Out deserved to be recognised. It's such a good script. It's such a smart insightful script that brilliantly pricks the issues that it's that it's trying to to break down like it, it, it it's just i think jordan peele should be so proud of his his work on that and and so proud of his win it's so well deserved i'm so glad the academy chose to recognize it um and call me by your name james ivory you know it's so nice to see him getting recognized like this he's in his 80s he's um he's one of the sort of the 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 greats of british cinema Um, And to see uh, an older queer man writing this story about queer romantic love and to have that recognized by the Academy is, you know, obviously that's very
1: touching. Well, And it's like he's going into his past because he has to write from like a young person's perspective.
0: Yeah. Um, And, you know, that was the adapted. So he was he was uh, working from Andre Esserman's novel. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, but but it's very clear that what he wrote was this you know, it, it built for the, the, the screen in a way that it, I, I think I said this in story, it almost feels like it isn't written. It's such a, I don't know if you saw call me by. Your I
1: Name. did. I did. It's one of the most subtle understated yeah. movies of that selection of movies. That I saw. It,
0: absolutely. Like it, there's barely a plot and it, and, and there aren't even a lot of sort of standout dialogue moments. There's the amazing uh, speech that the, the father gives towards the end. And that's kind of the only speech in the whole right. thing. Um, But it's otherwise, it's a very sort of chill movie. A very sort of sinewy and languid and, and, you know, feels like a long romantic summer.
1: And they used to make movies like that. Like, there used to be those sort of destination Italian movies like when you had like cinema verite and like the bicycle thief and you'd you'd get like those italian vistas and the sort of vacation movie and the self-discovery on vacation movie that used to happen more often where it would be pulled like taffy all the all the time i
0: think yeah we reached the sort of era of the cheap package holiday where people, if they wanted to see a place in the world, they could afford to go, and yeah. that's great. The democratization of tra- travel is great, but it took something away from the romanticism of travel, and I don't know if we'll ever get back to that place, but, but yeah, movies like Call Me By Your Name offer something like that. Maybe it's smart that it's a period movie because you can't travel to Italy in the 1980s. Right. So a movie can do something that, that, that uh, travel can't do.
1: Yeah, and you see, like, those bicycles and, yeah. like, all the different accoutrement that you know don't really exist in the same way any, yeah. anymore and the fashions my yeah goodness. <laughs> <And> the shorts <laughs> totally <laughs> totally <laughs> anyway man uh i don't want to keep you any longer but uh where can people find you online if they want to keep track of all of the different things that you're doing you're like the british jim's right? <laughs> up you're gonna become the british jim's
0: yeah i'm not there yet um <laughs> My my British uh, uh, restraint is is far too overwhelming. I could never I can never be (laughs) the great salesman that that Jim is. Um, But the easiest place to catch me is actually on Twitter. So I'm at Wheeler. W-H-E-E-L-E-R, that's sort of the the hub for, for me in terms of uh, outreach. I'm on Instagram at wheelergram, and I don't really, I mean, I have a website at andrewwheeler.co.uk, but it really needs to be updated. Um, so, yeah, at wheeler is the best place to find me, and that's where you'll find me updating on freelance's release schedule and on Valentine and the widow's release schedule and also i'm currently serializing a novel for free on wattpad so you can get updates to that if you look come to me on twitter or go to wattpad.com and search for the twilight prince by andrew wheeler that's a gay ya novel
1: that uh, that i'm currently giving away for free two chapters a week that's awesome check that out because i'm gonna go home and do that (laughs) uh you should also follow us at speech bubble pod on twitter facebook and instagram follow never sleeps network at never sleeps net on those same platforms uh, you can find this podcast at never sleeps or wherever you get your podcast needs met uh, until next time this has been another episode of speech bubble ciao for now this has been speech bubble see you in the future friends Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com is executive produced by Alex Ross. Audio editing by Joseph Yanni. Social media assistance by Jamie Warner and the Social Smiths. Announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward. Logo design and graphical assistance by Brittany Tice. Never Sleeps Network.